Hello and welcome to Humanity Centered, a podcast that explores research in the arts and humanities at Carleton College. I'm Clara Hardy, the director of Carleton's Humanity Center. In this episode, we conclude our series on projects that emerged from a Mellon Foundation grant called Public Works, Arts and Humanities Connecting Communities. Today, I'm talking with Meredith McCoy, Assistant Professor of American Studies and History, about her project in Chicago, as well as her initiative on campus supporting our first elder in residence. You'll hear threads in this conversation familiar from the earlier episodes, in particular, the importance of time in developing the trust necessary for collaborative work beyond the classroom, and the deep attentiveness to place involved with this kind of work. I began by asking Meredith about the first of her projects that the Public Works Grant helped support. This was an initiative called Indigenous Chicago that Meredith undertook in partnership with the Newberry Library and the Chicago American Indian Community Collaborative. In the fall of 2018, I was selected for a fellowship with the Newberry Library in Chicago. Um, They have a fellowship that's for Native women to come and do research at the library. So I was there in residence during the fall. And during that time, I started building relationships within the Chicago Native community. And then that eventually blossomed into a full-scale partnership between myself, uh, the Newberry Library, and the Chicago American Indian Community Collaborative, which is sort of an umbrella organization for all kinds of community organizations within Chicago. So what we've developed now is this project called Indigenous Chicago, where it's um, this sort of multifaceted effort to increase the visibility of Chicago as a native space, as a space that always has been and always will be a native space. So that includes curricular development. That's the part that I am most closely involved in. The development of an exhibit that will be at the Newberry, some public programming, an oral histories project that will update some previous oral histories projects that have been done with the Chicago Native community, and a digital mapping component. We've got a community advisory board of 30 community members, and uh, each of those community members is on one to two subcommittees to work on some of those project outputs. Um, And it really has been, from the beginning, a community accountable and community-driven project. So what Public Works supported was this initial big community meal where we got together all of these constituents from the Chicago Native community and fed everybody in a way that's very culturally appropriate within Native communities and just said, does this feel like there's a need? Would you even want there to be this kind of a project? And the resounding response we got was, yes, we want this kind of a project. Native folks, you know, Dr. Stephanie Freiberg, who's a Tulalip psychologist, has said that invisibility is the contemporary form of racism against Native people. And the community felt that really palpably, right? What they were saying is, we want this visibility, and we believe that these various outputs, curriculum, digital presence, exhibit, public programming, oral histories, that all of these are mechanisms for making us more visible and for helping people to understand Chicago as a place that's always been this crossroads for a lot of different indigenous communities. Um, Most notably that it's Potawatomi homelands, but has always been a crossroads for lots of different folks. Um, And so that has then turned out these community listening sessions where we've, you know, brought folks in to just tell us what they want. You know, what what do these subcomponents need to look like? And now we're at the stage where we're starting to develop some of the materials and we've got both these sort of formalized committees that are where folks are being compensated appropriately for their time and work on the project to oversee and guide the project as well as develop materials. And also periodic check-ins with the broader community where we give status updates and ask for community feedback. 
this is a long project, right? So it started <laughs> our first uh, community meal was just before the pandemic began. And we anticipate rolling all of this out in 2024. So we understand that when you're doing this kind of community-based work, it is slow and by necessity. And that, that that's part of the beauty of it, right? Is it has to be relational and iterative. And that means that it is naturally a lengthy process. Um, so we're in for the long haul and public, public works has certainly been very helpful in that. Um, public works also supported me taking two student researchers out to help index an archive that's held at the Newberry that directly informs the project. So those students worked for me on two different summers. The, the first was the first summer of the pandemic when we were supposed to be in Chicago, but couldn't. And so the students did a lit review of everything we know about Chicago as a native place, as a contemporary native place. And then in the second summer, they were able to go to Chicago and they went with me and spent a couple of weeks in Chicago going through the records of um, his, of a priest who's worked with the Chicago Native community for 50 years and just starting to go through his materials. And no one had ever been given permission to look through his materials before. So this is a lot of the trust that he has in the project that we're doing. And he allowed um, myself and these two students to start going through and just building out an index of what's even in this so that we can, in the future, make it available to, to the community. Wow. So that's a very uh, extensive kind of suite of different things that you're doing in Chicago. Um, and so you said um, that was kind of entirely separate from the Elder in Residence program. Are there any ways in which um, your work with the Minnesota communities is structured like or connected to uh, your experience in Chicago? These are actually very different initiatives for me. So the the Chicago work is, for me, about reciprocity. I was able to go and be in residence at the Newberry. It was very important for my research for my book. And I wanted to figure out a way to be involved in the long term in a way that allowed me to give back to the community for the gifts I'd received when I was there at the Newberry. In Minnesota, this is about me being in place. So thinking about what it means to me as an Ojibwe person to be living and working and benefiting from being on Dakota homelands. So the work in for me in, in Minnesota, since I arrived here three years ago, has largely been about how do I make sure that I'm building relations in a good way with Dakota people? We are geographically most closely located to the Prairie Island Indian community with whom we share a watershed and with the Shakopee Mdewakanton Sioux community. So I, I started pretty early on building uh, academic civic engagement collaborations with the Shakopee Mdewakanton Sioux community they have shown a lot of trust, and I'm very grateful for that trust um, in me and in my students. So we've, we now, uh, three different terms, have worked with the Hochakarati Cultural Center, um, where we have had students going into their database and uh, basically moving old descriptors for items in their, in their database into a place where they can be archived and writing in new descriptors for researchers in the community who want to be able to look through the catalog and find items that might be related to their, to their community. Um, that for me is all about reciprocity. And so while that is not necessarily closely tied to my research, it's deeply embedded in my teaching. So the, the work with the, the work that my students have been doing with Shakopee Mdewakanton Sioux community is largely based in the values that I bring to my teaching, which is to say that 
everything we do in the humanities and particularly within indigenous studies needs to be grounded in place and with a sense of our ethical responsibilities to the people who are connected to that place. So for me, what I bring into that is the the values that LaDonna Harris has called the four R's, respect, responsibility, reciprocity, and redistribution. So those are the ethics that guide my classes and that students understand are foundational to the academic civic engagement partnerships that we're doing. That also has been part of the relationship building work with Prairie Island. So when, when we first started hearing word that folks in Northfield at St. Olaf and at Carleton were working on a land acknowledgement, initially when I got involved in that conversation, it was important to me for us to stop and ask, why are we doing this? Are we doing this because this is the fad and people across the United States and Canada seem to be very interested in the performativity of a land acknowledgement? Or are we doing this because we really are ready to have a conversation where we reckon with our role in the ongoing dispossession of Dakota people, in their inability to access lands in Northfield because of our presence here? And when I got to Carleton, folks were understandably uninformed about that history. There were a lot of myths that were circulating on campus about how Northfield was never a Native place or about how Native people used the land that's now Northfield as a trade route but never lived here, or about how there's no archaeological record, therefore Native people can't have been here, right? These, these myths are pretty easy to debunk. We live right on the Cannon River. It's a very fertile area. It's an area of high transit possibility. And we know from historic maps that we are right in the heart of Dakota territory. So each of those sort of falls away, right? And what we're left to reckon with is that Carleton was founded three years after Dakota people were forced marched out of southern Minnesota. The coincidence of that timing is not something that we can overlook. And so my role helping to develop those partnerships between Carleton and Prairie Island and Shakopee is also part of that sense of campus-wide obligation for how do we make this a better place in terms of building external relationships with tribal partners and making it a safer place for Native people to want to send their children here as students. Carleton has not done a great job historically, this is no secret, of recruiting and retaining Native students. And when I got on this campus and started asking, you know, what are the histories of Native students at this place? A lot of what I started to hear was, well, people used to drop out a lot. They would come here for a year and then they would drop out. And there were, of course, ebbs and flows where periodically would have a handful of Native students on campus at the same time, and they would start a Native student organization. And then we would not consistently recruit enough Native students and the organization would fall away. And that knowledge became the foundation for my class, Indigenous Histories at Carleton, where students began to do some of this research into the history of our campus as an Indigenous space. And as a result of that research, we were able to start doing some stronger outreach to Prairie Island. Turns out, our good fortune is that the Prairie Island education director is the father of a Carleton grad. Right. And so Paul and Broderick and some of the folks at Prairie Island were really interested in helping us support Native students. And that's how we get to the Elder in Residence program. I am the very happy and proud graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I went to, to Carolina twice for undergrad and for graduate school. Carolina has a really robust Native student body, right? I was, when I was there as the president of our undergraduate organization, I was one of 30 Native students. Wow. 
at the undergraduate level alone. At Carleton, currently, we think we have nine. And that, for a place that is on Dakota homelands, is pretty embarrassing. Yeah. And the nine, are the nine even all from Minnesota or no, from all over the country? They are from all over the world. Um, and of the nine, we have two who are Ojibwe. One is from Minnesota and a student who is um, Lakota, uh, but Lakota from South Dakota. Okay. So we do not currently have, that we know of, any Dakota students from Minnesota. Nor have we in the time that I've been here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I, what I was able to start developing when I got here and started working with the Native students, I started trying to figure out how do I bring to Carleton some of those gifts of programming that I was afforded when I was at Carolina. One of the programs that was most successful was our Elder in Residence program. So Elder in Residence programs exist at campuses across the country. They vary in time from a couple of days to a year. But what they have in common consistently is that their mission is to support students on campus, Native and non-Native, to help faculty and staff build understanding about who Native people are in a contemporary way, to help campuses think about how they better serve Native students and better work in tandem with Native faculty and staff, and then do some of that external relationship building between campuses and tribal communities. And so when uh, Michael and I, in in collaboration with this um, the Building Relationships with Indigenous Communities Working Group that Carleton alum Andrew Fedia started when Andrew was still CSA president. We started having these conversations about what do we do to make Carleton a more responsive place for Native students, to help our campus build their understanding of Native people and of our, our responsibilities in this place, and to do this external relationship building work. And the Elder and Residence Program seemed to meet all of those objectives. So Michael and I got together and wrote up a proposal which we then sent off to the public works folks. And they, with such grace, uh, supported us in developing that program over the next several months. Um, and when Denise Lajmadier, who is a Turtle Mountain Ojibwe from my own community, came as our inaugural elder in residence, she really spoke to all of those areas. She's a former education professor at North Dakota State University. So she understands how to speak the language of higher education. She's a, an elder from our community, so she was really interested in supporting Native youth and thinking about how she can meet with our students and support them in their journeys. She's a birch bark biter who was able to offer art workshops for the studio art students as well as the Native students. She's a published children's book author and poet and scholar, so she was able to give talks related to all of those publications. And she had extensive meetings with Carleton administration and open visiting hours with faculty and staff. Um, so she really was able to help us think about who are we in this moment? What are our responsibilities in place? And she and I connect over shared histories of research in Native education. Denise's work has been about Native women's leadership and also about the histories of the federal Indian boarding schools. My own family survived those schools. My great-grandparents attended federal schools at Wapton and Fort Totten. And that plays a role in how I approach research into histories of Native education policy. So in thinking about this question of how does this elder in residence program connect back to my work, it's 
kind of a complicated story, right? It's both that I study education, I study education policy, I study best practices for supporting Native students K through college, and I know that elder and residence programs are best practices for supporting Native students in higher education. It's also that I study how to best translate histories of Native people for non-Native audiences. I do that in my K-12 social studies work and also in just how I teach my courses at Carleton, where the majority of my students, of course, are not Native. So it's related to that. And it's also related to these obligations, these ethical commitments to be in place and to think about how we deploy those four values of respect and relationships and responsibility and and redistribution um, in this local context. So do you see, um, I'm assuming and hoping that um, we'll be able to in some way regularize the elder in residence program and and bring in somebody every year or every other year? Is that on the horizon? We certainly hope so. Uh, Michael and I have already started having some conversations about how to make sure this program succeeds next year. I will be on sabbatical. <laughs> I'm very grateful for the time to finish my book. Um, and, and Michael will certainly be taking lead on running it next year. And we've, we've started to brainstorm some ideas. And uh, one of the big questions, of course, is what is the stable funding source for this project? We know that it was expensive, but we believe that it was worth it based on the, the feedback that we received from the community. Um, and this was really, it was such a beautifully uh, cross-campus initiative. We had support from, um, of course, American Studies, from uh, in, in terms of my work, and also the support of Lisa Falconer. We had support from Public Works. We had support from the Sustainability Office, the Center for Community and Civic Engagement. TRIPCE was an amazing partner in building this out. Uh, so understanding that it really is an initiative that requires that kind of cross-campus partnership um, just means that it is something that needs a lot of fore planning. And that was, uh, that is something that we believe that we can build in as we continue to think about, especially bringing on the new position in the TRIP CE for the Indigenous Communities Liaison. Uh, that, that new staff position is something that we are so thrilled about. It was just announced this past week. And we think that this will probably fall substantially within the responsibilities of that person. Right. Yeah, that's very exciting. But I'm really uh, just kind of from my own place as, as someone who studies narrative and literature um, have been drawn to the, the phrase of honest storytelling in our land acknowledgement um, and especially its association with healing. And I know that many of the narratives involved are narratives of trauma um, and are, are really difficult, um, I'm sure, both for Native and non-Native people to hear and process. Um, and yet that seems to be such a, a central and important part of, of the work that we can do and, and should be doing. And I wondered, like, how you think about that, about that collision between... Um, between reviving harm and healing that harm that those narratives kind of um, combine? It's a really good question. Uh, And I think we have a lot to learn from the truth and reconciliation process in Canada when it comes to both how we support people 
who are telling these hard truths and to what we, what we then do with them. And to my mind, what is really essential is that we don't tell these hard histories just to hear them. We tell them because we hope that it will inspire change. And if we just, if we just tell them to tell them and then we don't do anything about it, we have asked people to relive traumas unnecessarily and that's its own form of violence. There's a sense that it's worth it to name these difficult histories if people are willing to do something differently in the future. And I think, you know, it, it does, there, what I find in my own classroom is that even when Native students don't necessarily know the specifics of the genocide attempted against our people, they, they see, they know the impact of it. And so with Native students, often what I'm doing is just teaching them the how. Mm-hmm. This, is the, this is the mechanism that led to the economic devastation of our communities, that led to the interruptions of our family systems, that led to the disruption of our ethnobotanical and kinship practices, all of the things that colonialism has attempted to interrupt in, in its avarice for our lands and lives. With non-Native students, this is often the very first time that they've heard about it, and they are outraged. They're not just outraged at what happened. They're outraged that the information has been denied to them in the past. And so the types of sensitivity that are required for each audience in some ways is different. So it's thinking in part about the sensitivity required for how we tell these stories, who the audiences are for these stories, who we require to relive the traumas when they're being told, and then what are the actions that come out of that after we have asked people to share those stories with us. Yeah, thank you. That's, um, it's, it's just such a layered and complicated and, and difficult kind of set of things to, to try to think about. So uh, I really appreciate that. Um, well, super. That, this, is, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much, Meredith. Is there anything that you didn't get a chance to say that you would like to be sure is, is mentioned? I want to just note and reiterate that this is a moment when our campus has a real opportunity. All of the things that I've mentioned, right, our partnerships for the Elder and Residence Program that, of course, are very closely connected to our relationship that we're growing with Prairie Island, through, in part, the work that we did around Indigenous Peoples Day that Public Works was also supportive of, um, the inaugural Elder, uh, I'm sorry, the the very first ever president-to-president meeting where the president of Prairie Island came over and met with President Byerly that whole day of events for Indigenous Peoples Day where they set up a lodge on the bald spot and had educational programming for students, the types of academics of engagement partnerships that we're building, all of these things put us in a particular moment of opportunity. What I know from my study of Native history and Native activism history is that windows of opportunity are often very fleeting. So we have a responsibility right now as a campus to decide whether this is going to be just a moment and later historians will look back and say, wasn't that a nice moment, but it didn't last? Or whether we're going to say that this is a profound pivot and we're going to commit to being better partners and better neighbors to Native people moving forward. So my hope is that programs like the Elder in Residence program form part of that pivot 
where we really are committing to change, both for the Native students who attend our institution and to the people whose lands we're occupying. And we all have to be part of that. There's a link to the Public Works Grant website with information on all the projects it's supported on our podcast website, which you can find among the tabs on the left-hand side of www.carleton.edu humanities. There you can also discover more about all the programs supported by Carleton's Humanities Center. This podcast is a production of the Carleton Humanities Center and is edited by me, Clara Hardy, with original music by Will Hardy. Thanks, as always, to Austin Mason, Director of Digital Humanities at Carleton, and the Humanities Center Advisory Board for helpful suggestions and support. You can subscribe to Humanities Centered wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.